Too Big to Fail. How's that for a bit of pressure on the AUKUS partnership on its first birthday? Today on the Policy, Guns and Money podcast, Aspie Executive Director Justin Bassey speaks with Becca Wasser, Defence Fellow and Head of the Gaming Lab at the Centre for a New American Security. Becca says AUKUS is such an essential show of commitment between friends and allies that its failure would mean the failure of the US national defence strategy and potentially for the very idea of integrated defence. They also talk about CNAS war games, where failure is not just an option but is encouraged, and get into some deep questions about a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan, including Australia's role in deterrence and the million US dollar question, when might Beijing decide it's the right time? Becca Wasser, Fellow for the Defence Program and Lead of the Gaming Lab at the Centre for New American Security, or CNAS. Welcome to the Australian Strategic Policy Institute podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It has been great to spend this week with you and your CNAS colleagues, along with our friends at the Centre for Grand Strategy at the King's College London, discussing the significance of AUKUS, the trilateral defence and security partnership between Australia, the US and the UK, exactly 12 months on from its announcement by the three governments. It's a partnership that involves both the provision of nuclear-powered submarines to Australia, as well as being a vital technology accelerator across multiple fields, such as AI and cyber. Becca, from your perspective, why is AUKUS so important? And do you agree that events over the last 12 months, from Russia's invasion of Ukraine to China's inroads into the Pacific, have only confirmed the need for the partnership to be a success? Absolutely. AUKUS is such a strong strategic signal of what the United States can do along with some of its most vital allies. And so I think if you're looking at Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it has truly reinforced the importance of allies and partners, not only to the United States, but I think to various capitals. For example, you can take uh, and do sort of a compare and contrast of NATO's reaction to Russia's aggression in Ukraine in 2014. And you had NATO members that weren't quite sure what they were seeing. They weren't aligned on what was happening, and therefore they weren't aligned on the responses. And if you compare that to what we're seeing today, where uh, there is all of this coordination and information sharing in the run-up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. But you had NATO aligned on what they were seeing, right? They saw what was happening. They were able to align their responses and their coordination in terms of sanctions and military aid, and really were able to have such a strong impact and, frankly, turn the tide of how the conflict could have gone. So I think that has really reinforced the need to have the strong webs of allies and partners, both at sort of this grand level, but also this mini lateral level. And I think this is where you really have AUKUS, which brings together, you know, three highly advanced uh, military and technological powers. It's increasingly important, you know, particularly if we genuinely believe that China could aggress either in the near future or the long term future, whether that's somewhere within the Indo-Pacific or Taiwan, you know, deepening AUKUS is sending a strong strategic signal of combined power uh, that could be vital to deterring China from actually thinking that its aggression uh, would be profitable. But also just thinking about the ways in which having that grouping will enable us to enhance some of our coordination and what we're doing. It's vital to allow us to have a speedy and aligned response, but also to make some gains in really important areas for all of us, which is really where the technological competition comes in. 
Yeah, completely agree. You mentioned uh, cooperation, coordination, partnerships, so vital, whether it be at the government-to-government level across the AUKUS partners uh, or government with industry and civil society uh, think tanks uh, like ours, which is uh, why uh, our think tanks are working with uh, the Centre for Grand Strategy as well. It's it's interesting, uh, so many of the discussions on AUKUS, uh, particularly in Australia, are limited to uh, the discussion around Australia getting nuclear-powered submarines, but Clearly, the US did not give Australia access to the crown jewel simply because Australia asked politely for nuclear submarines. So what, in your view, shifted US thinking uh, over the last few years into forming a view that such a security partnership was necessary? If only it were as easy to do capability development and move through that process, as long as it was just asking nicely, uh, we would end up with a lot of spare time on our hands. Um, I actually think in some ways this really emerged from something that was more within the U.S. system than, frankly, um, Australia. And here, I think it was this recognition that, one, the U.S. can't do it alone, but two, the U.S. role as the global policeman is going to change and needs to change. You know, the U.S. military in particular is finding itself increasingly overstretched and frenetic because of all of the global responsibilities um, and requirements. And so that's had an impact on some of the decisions that the United States has made, particularly about some of its own force structure and posture decisions. And so you see in the forthcoming national defense strategy. There's a one-page fact sheet at the moment, but uh, we're hopefully going to hear more soon. Part of what the national defense strategy is all about is this idea of integrated deterrence, which has uh, not really a clear definition at the moment, but one key component of that, that administration officials really keep on hitting home, is working with allies and partners. And so here, I think there's this move toward greater burden sharing, hoping that there are these high-end, more capable partners who can help the United States make sure that they can, uh, you know, still add to the security and stability of regions that are frankly quite far away from the continental United States, like in the Indo-Pacific. So here's why I think you have uh, the U.S. being willing to work with Australia on this because this is such a vital capability that could actually enhance conventional uh, deterrence over time Um, and think about ways in which we can maybe even pool some of these capabilities and use them together in future or or potential scenarios. And so, frankly, if you're looking at the long-term China challenge, which the U.S. has said is its priority challenge, this is really what's needed. And this is the theory of the case for how the United States is going to get at that China challenge. Very good. The uh, the whole point of each of us having a uh, national defence strategy uh, is recognising that some burden sharing is absolutely required. You uh, you referred to the importance of uh, scenarios. Uh, Becca, you lead the gaming lab at CNAS, uh, which develops and runs unclassified games and exercises on different national security issues. So have you got a view on what uh, a future may look like if... AUKUS were to fail? Well, I try not to do too much fortune telling, um, but, you know, part of my job uh, with gaming is really developing a bunch of scenarios that we can use as jumping off points to examine plausible potential futures. So I haven't necessarily written out a scenario about what if AUKUS were to fail, but I think we can probably take that question and say that there's a uh, 
two things that uh, we should probably discuss. The first is if AUKUS fails, then the U.S. national defense strategy fails, right? Because it's so focused on integrated deterrence. And AUKUS is not just a test case for integrated deterrence. It's the test case for integrated deterrence. If it doesn't happen, then integrated deterrence is not a thing. And that means that in turn, you see the national defense strategy's lunch get eaten. Um, And then the second part that we need to consider is the fear that if AUKUS fails, deterrence fails. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily what would be the case, but I think deterrence most certainly uh, would be weakened. You know, AUKUS faltering would send the wrong signal to potential adversaries, whether that's China or Russia or even more persistent and potentially lesser threats like Iran or VEOs, about the depths of commitment that the United States has to its allies and partners, and frankly, the depth of relationship that allies and partners have with the United States. So I think those are things that are worth considering, and one of the many reasons why we hear U.S. government officials refer to AUKUS as being too big to fail. Yes, it's uh, it's a theme that uh, we've heard here in uh, D.C. Uh, a fair bit, that failure is not an option. And I agree that if AUKUS were to fail, it would either mean a failure of deterrence or, as you say, at the very least, that deterrence has been weakened. And we've seen over the years how vital, how necessary deterrence is to avoid war and conflict. And if there is a lack of deterrence, uh, then the likes of uh, uh, Putin, uh, Putin's Russia, will try to take full advantage. Uh, On war games more broadly, uh, I was interested to read that in 2019, you wrote that when you tell people, and this is a quote from you, that when you tell people that I'm a war gamer, I'm either met with blank stares or overly enthusiastic questions about what it is like to play Call of Duty or Risk for a living. Uh, while our gamers, our gamer listeners will no doubt say they take their gaming very, very seriously, can you tell us about the Gaming Lab, what war gaming is really about, and why it is so important for our respective defence departments to understand different scenarios? Absolutely. So let me start with war games before moving on to a little pitch about the CNIS Gaming Lab, because I got to work for my money. Um, So for me, war games are uh, the definition. It's really it's people making choices in a synthetic environment. So not the real world uh, where they have to live with the repercussions of the choices that they make. And so in some ways, gaming models human behavior and really is just a you know, kind of making the adage that for every action there is a reaction come to life. And war games in particular uh, examine conflict issues. And so this can be some of the more operational level tactical force on force uh, interaction or some of the strategic level questions that we have about things like deterrence and escalation. Um, War games help us do a whole range of things. I'll just mention a few. They allow us to test different strategies, different operational concepts, new tactics in sort of this safe to fail environment. If we were to test all of these things in the real world during conflict, I think, unfortunately, the end result would be um, quite devastating and potentially result in the loss of life. And we don't want to do that. So testing these things out in this, you know, kind of fictional environment allows us to uh, really solidify them and refine them to make sure that they work when we decide to road test them in the real world. 
War games also allow us to identify some key trade-offs in things like capabilities, force structure, posture, and they also help us think through sometimes how our adversaries and our allies alike would respond to some of the choices that we would need to make. And so here I want to make a plug for why we game. And, you know, Justin, you you referred to it just now. So I'm going to repeat kind of what you said, right? We don't do it because we're warmongers. We don't do it because we like war. We do it for the opposite reason, which is we're doing it for ways to identify how it is we can strengthen deterrence so that a would-be adversary looks at the situation and decides that their actions would not be successful. And in doing so, they would make the decision not to aggress, not to invade, not to carry out whatever action they were thinking about. We're trying to strengthen deterrence so as to not go to war. And so this is really the heart of why you have the U.S. and the Australian Departments of Defense using wargaming. We're trying to understand how we can strengthen deterrence in a range of scenarios. And sometimes these are, you know, high-end conflict, right? So looking at a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan or something that's more at that subconventional gray zone level. So maybe this is something that falls short of an economic blockade, but instead focuses on economic coercion. And games help us understand what we can do within those contexts and how an adversary might perceive our actions. And that allows us to make better choices both in the uh, sort of short term and in the long term. And so, you know, I think it's worth noting once again that, you know, war games, they're not magic, right? They're not going to tell you the right answer. They're going to give you some sense of what the right answer could be in a very specific scenario. So in one plausible future, they're not going to tell you what to do or how to predict the future. Um, so shifting now to my, you know, shilling for the CNAS game, gaming lab. Go for it. Okay. So this is CNAS's unclassified wargaming capability, um, where we mainly run three different types of games. The first is operational war games, which I described earlier, strategy games, which tend to get really creative and sometimes do look a little bit more like risk. Um, and what I refer to as expert elicitation exercises. And we do these on a range of issues and scenarios. And so this could be Europe, the Indo-Pacific. It could be looking at things from semiconductors to nuclear warfare. And I'll just say that we're a bit unique in that we run unclassified games and that we're not affiliated with the U.S. Department of Defense. You know, a lot of uh, the gaming enterprise has links to DOD. Um, And Our ability to run these unclassified games means that we can actually add in new and different voices into the debate, which because war games are a human-driven tool, it allows us to strengthen what we're doing through gaming. So here, you know, we're able to bring in subject matter experts who, uh, for example, know everything and anything about, you know, China's military decision-making, which would be super important for us to know as we're gaming, you know, a potential China scenario, who don't have clearances and wouldn't be allowed in the room in some of the DOD war games. And the same thing with allies and partners, right? Sometimes there are barriers to even departments of defense working with each other. And we're able to bridge that divide. And that's one of the reasons why I love being sort of on the outside looking in doing all of this work, because I get to bring in a lot more folks who make me smarter. And I hope ultimately help us make our departments of defense much smarter as well. 
Well, that's excellent. We'll make sure that all our uh, Aspie listeners follow uh, the uh, CNAS uh, uh, wargaming model. Your point about the advantage of running unclassified games does resonate. The power of bringing the non-defence establishment uh, along with us uh, is so important uh, to avoid a situation where we're just talking amongst ourselves. That is excellent to know, as is your phrase uh, that... It's a safe-to-fail environment. Uh, I think too often in the national security field uh, we're too risk-averse, either not willing to fail at all and therefore don't manage any risk, uh, or we don't acknowledge where a policy or or action has failed uh, and where we need to adapt. So uh, running the scenarios uh, with the premise that uh, it is a safe-to-fail environment uh, is uh, clearly a key advantage you mentioned a number of potential scenarios uh, there in an increasingly relevant focus area for the Indo-Pacific. You recently led uh, with CNAS colleagues a war game entitled Dangerous Straits, Wargaming, a Future Conflict over Taiwan. That report, uh, which is a must-read for all involved in national security, makes the point that while still a hypothetical, such a scenario is now far more credible than only a year or so ago. The report says, quote, the mix of rapid Chinese military modernization, a narrow window for localized near parity with the US military, and growing pessimism about the prospects for peaceful unification may lead Beijing to perceive a successful operation against Taiwan requires an accelerated timeline. Can you tell us about this scenario? What was the methodology and how did the scenario play out? Absolutely. So this was an operational war game that we developed um, actually for Meet the Press, which is a show on NBC in the United States. And so there's an episode where you can watch parts of this war game uh, play out. So it was an operational war game where we asked participants to not only make some of the operational choices about forces and capabilities and their posture, but also to develop an overarching military strategy. So I usually refer to these as sort of these hybrid strategic operational games. And it was centered around the idea that China had decided to invade Taiwan. And this was ultimately a political decision. And frankly, I think in the real world, it would be ultimately a political decision more so than a military one. And it was sparked by increasing fears that Taiwan was moving toward independence, despite Taiwan's assurances that that was not the case. And so China had uh, demanded immediate uh, unification talks, uh, which Taiwan had rightfully um, rejected. And so there's this overt buildup, kind of not terribly unlike what we ended up seeing Russia do uh, in the run up to Ukraine. And that allowed the United States and key allies and partners such as Australia and Japan to prepare to defend Taiwan. And so in the first move, you had China launching their invasion of Taiwan, but they also launched preemptive strikes um, at U.S. bases in the region, uh, in Guam, the Northern Marianas, and in Japan, and the war game just went from there. It sounds like definitely something uh, that we should all uh, uh, go to uh, meet the, pre- the press uh, uh, <laughs> website to uh, to see what we can watch and uh, and understand how it played out. A lot of talk about Australia in the episode, so well, your listeners might be interested. Very interested. It's uh, it's a hot topic, definitely uh, very relevant for the entire region. With increased PRC military activity around uh, Taiwan in particular, a core aspect of the debate. Uh, over the last several months has been uh, the, the likely time frame uh, around a potential conflict. 
from your extensive work on this and the particular war game, uh, how it played out, uh, and your own views, uh, uh, have you got a view on what a likely time frame may be? That's the million-dollar question, um, and potentially in U.S. dollars rather than Australian dollars. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we all want to know the answer to that so we can plan appropriately. So the game that we ran uh, was focused on 2027, and there's been a lot around 2027, this idea of the Davidson window. And we chose that year not because we thought it was the most likely, even though for some of the reasons that you quoted earlier, this idea of potential near military parity makes it possibly more likely. Um, We thought that that year was important, not because it was what we expected, but rather because it aligned with the U.S. Department of Defense's future year's defense program cycle. So this is a planning cycle. And so it meant that our insights, uh, particularly about some of the capability development uh, that might be needed, would have implications for the next planning cycle as we were trying to help the Department of the U.S. Department of Defense there. And I mean, The timeline thing, it's really a polarizing issue. You get folks banging the gong about how it is 27 and it's going to happen then. And you have other folks who are saying that maybe 2030, 2035 is more likely. And then to make things more complicated, you have folks who say it's not an invasion that we should be worried about. It's something more akin to an economic blockade, particularly after China's more recent drills, um, after um, Uh, Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan kind of demonstrated more practicing for an economic blockade than anything else. So again, I just want to footstomp. No one really knows. A potential invasion would be a political issue, not a military one. Um, But it's still a really hard military problem for China. In 2027, in 2030, and even 2035, it requires China making the right choices about its military modernization, about its training, and what it's doing. So all of that to say is, don't know, but this is exactly why we war games, so we can war game different scenarios in different time periods, so we can figure out what works best for all of those. Makes perfect sense, while being happy to uh, fail and move on to the next scenario. Uh, <laughs> did in any of your scenarios, uh, you have uh, Australia and other countries joining in? Oh, absolutely. So uh, in the Dangerous Straits game, Australia started the game by providing overflight and basing access, but did not end up becoming party to the conflict until Australia was attacked by China. So we ended up having a lot of Australian basing access be hugely pivotal in the game, um, as well as Australian forces uh, supplementing some of what the United States was doing as well. Again, shows the importance of partnerships. uh, And uh, I'm sure the scenario showed the importance of actually having effective deterrence. Yes, indeed. You also uh, followed closely, as I understand it, a similar uh, war game uh, run by your friends at CSIS on Taiwan. Uh, Can you talk us through uh, any of the similarities and differences that you saw between the CSIS uh, scenario and your own? 
Yeah. So another example of think tank partnership. Um, so I participated in a war game that CSIS ran that was also looking at a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Uh, their war game was set in 2026. So one year earlier than uh, the game that uh, CNAS put on. Um, and I would say the problem set was roughly the same. We were trying to understand, you know, how could this conflict potentially unfold. Um, but the biggest difference was that the CSIS game focused solely on conventional forces. Nuclear capabilities for both China and the U.S. were uh, taken out of the game, uh, in part because they really wanted to focus on the conventional problem set. Um, however, that meant that players were making choices about some of their conventional capabilities that you know, we might have given a little bit more pause if the potential for nuclear escalation was still on the table. So the CNAS game, uh, in contrast, did allow for nuclear capabilities to be in play. And we actually ended up seeing some nuke activity in terms of uh, China trying to do nuclear signaling and actually launching um, a demonstration hemp shot off the coast of Hawaii by the last turn um, in our game. And so that's a key difference and something that I think is worth, uh, you know, consumers of both games uh, understanding and potentially taking with a grain of salt. And very much sounds like why we would want to do everything possible to deter war. Something you mentioned earlier, security think tanks uh, like ours and uh, the scenarios, the war games that you run uh, people refer to as uh, warmongering. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is something that, uh, that the team at Aspie constantly faces, a, a narrative uh, from uh, um, a number of uh, areas, in particular uh, out of uh, Beijing and uh, the uh, the likes of the Global Times, uh, that uh, any of our analysis is, is warmongering, as opposed to simply pouring sunlight on uh, Beijing's malign activities. So it did resonate both what you said and when I read in your report that War Games and the Taiwan one specifically was intended to produce insights as to how the United States and its allies and partners could deter the PRC from invading Taiwan, not just work out how to defend Taiwan and defeat such aggression should deterrence fail. So going to your earlier comment, how important is deterrence in the current era of strategic competition And what would you like to see from our respective governments to increase deterrence? So I think deterrence is incredibly important as we're looking at the China challenge, but I think we need to make a decision about what we're trying to deter and prioritize what we're trying to deter. Because deterring high-end aggression is going to be very different than deterring gray zone behavior and, you know, malign um, activity. So thinking through what we need to prioritize and where that rock and stack is, and my bias is actually prioritizing um, high-end deterrence, right, and trying to enhance deterrence by denial as kind of the gold standard of deterrence, if you will. Um, And I think taking steps to strengthen deterrence by denial, it's the number one thing that we can do today because it's going to take time. And I think Australia actually has a huge role to play in how this happens in the Indo-Pacific, particularly in partnership with the United States. So, you know, I'd like to see posture improvements in Australia so that Australia can, you know, improve infrastructure at um, air and naval bases, you know, 
doing things like building out runways to support wide-bodied aircraft, um, you know, including some bombers that could have a really strong yeah. strategic signal, um, you know, doing things that would allow um, Australia to really just be this strong, resilient, and redundant sort of rear logistics hub. So doing things like uh, perhaps joint stockpiles of uh, really key precision-guided munitions would be huge. Um creating redundancy in fuel, having fuel farms located throughout uh, Australia to support distributed operations in the Indo-Pacific. Those are some of the more near-term steps that we could take now that would enhance deterrence immediately as well as over the long term and seems within you know the realm of the feasible. Yeah, no, I agree. And it also shows the importance of having appropriate narratives uh, and ensuring that our politicians and our national security establishment are able to explain that uh, defence spending uh, is not simply for preparing for war, but it's uh, to deter war and conflict. Something that is a challenge in both our countries, uh, other than uh, trying to enhance deterrence, uh, is recruitment and retention of women in national security uh, ASPI uh, runs a Women in Defence and National Security Network. Uh, it is superbly run by uh, Olivia Nelson. But I know it's also a passion of yours. You have designed war games in partnership with Girl Security, an American nonprofit that encourages young women to pursue national security careers. Can you tell us about this element of your work? I think I've been incredibly lucky in my career that I've had some really good mentors who have tried to open so many doors for me. But I think I've also seen, you know, some doors just not be open to me unless someone else has either forced them open or doors maybe even being closed because someone has pulled up the ladder behind them. So I think it's incredibly important that, you know, again, to sort of my push for why we need unclassified war games, it's to add a plurality of thought, right? We're losing something if we don't have more diverse voices in the room, right? And so this can fall across gender, ethnicity, you name it. Um, so trying to ensure that we're building a pipeline for folks to perhaps maybe be a little bit more literate in some of these issues so that they don't feel disincentivized from joining a conversation, from taking a seat at a table. That's something that we can do. And frankly, we all have a service to do. Uh, so a lot of what I'm trying to do is educate, um, you know, younger, smart folks, about what gaming is, what security is, so we can build that pipeline so it doesn't just drop off and it doesn't, frankly, become male, pale, and stale, um, but also thinking about how it is we can do things across echelons, right? It's not just about the junior generation, but it, even though, you know, I strongly believe that's where the focus should be. But, you know, I try and bring so many of my peers along with me, right? If we are not lifting each other up, one, we're not doing ourselves any favors, but we're also not going to be learning in the right way. And we need to learn from each other. So that's a lot of what I'm trying to do, particularly in the gaming space, because that's a niche area that I tend to work in. But I think across defense more broadly, which ultimately tends to be a little bit mirror imaged and reflect one type of person. It's really well said. And building that pipeline is actually uh, in our national security interests. So all power yeah. to you. And uh, I'm sure our two organisations can uh, work strongly on that together. On a, on a lighter note to finish, I uh, understand you have a, a passion for soccer. There is, of course, a natural synergy between the competition for technological supremacy and competition on the sports field. Which one do you take more seriously? 
Oof. Okay. So let me explain my background on soccer. Uh, so I am a diehard Tottenham Hotspur fan, um, which means that I am more um, more comfortable with losing than winning, and I am more okay with disappointment because uh, that's a key component of being a Spurs fan. And I promise that this isn't a giant analogy about you know losing to the China Challenge, um, but instead, I think I want to point out something that's happening on Spurs this season. Uh, we have a new coach, Conte. Um, and he has made a point in trying to bring in new players to build the next generation of capability on the soccer field. But these folks, you know, need some time to maturate, which means that he's also brought in some older, more seasoned players as kind of this stopgap measure to heighten some of the performance now and provide some of the time and space that these younger players might need to come to fruition and sort of maximize the performance. And then you also have some of our longstanding players, some of whom, like Harry Kane, still do really well. Others, yeah, less so. So... All of this is about creating redundancy to have resiliency within the team to allow them to cycle players in and out and to maximize their performance and the shelf life. This, to me, is the perfect analogy for military and tech modernization, right? This is what we see. You're trying to make bets on future capabilities that are going to take time to come to fruition, but at the same time, you need to maximize what you currently have and ensure that it's resilient. And I think this is what we're trying to do in this technological competition and this military competition. So there's a lot of parallels between soccer and my day job, or at least this is what I tell myself when the Premier League has poorly timed games that show up during the work day. <laughs> no, it's fantastic. And uh, perhaps the success of Manchester City shows that both uh, skills, capabilities are needed, but a hell of a lot of money as, mm. as well. As uh, as a kid growing up in Australia, I supported Liverpool because uh, oh, the only Australian yeah. uh, I was aware of was uh, was Craig Johnston. Um, and uh, so Liverpool too has uh, had uh, some ups and downs in, uh, in recent years. But you understand my love of bitter disappointment. That's right. That's right. The, the pain, the pleasure and pain is a fine <laughs> line. Becca, it's been absolutely fantastic uh, to have you on the Aspie podcast. Uh, I do hope that we can have you on again. Uh, and to perhaps discuss your next scenario, uh, which I'm sure uh, will be uh, as uh, important and as exciting as your last one. But it's been my absolute pleasure. Uh, look forward to uh, having you, you on again very soon. Pleasure. It's been all mine. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks for listening to the Policy, Guns and Money podcast. Hope you enjoyed the conversation and we'll see you back here next week. <laughs>